So with no further ado, let's just jump in. Uh, I'm super excited about this series. Um, we typically preach, at least this first year of our existence, we've we kind of built out as pastors of Montrose Heights and, and Galleria a year's worth of, of preaching. Um, so we've been preaching typically the same thing, but then a whole a seven-week hole opened up because Heights wanted to do something different for their church planting residence. And so I just got this opportunity before stepping into Job for eight weeks, which is our next series, to just kind of think about what I wanted to preach. And so it's Jonah. So we're going to go from Jonah to Job, and then don't worry, we'll go to the New Testament after that. Uh, I think we're going to get some Colossians and some other stuff, so I'm excited about that too. But man, seven weeks in Jonah, I think typically you get through it in about four because it's four chapters, so we get to sink, we get to sink in. So I noticed we had 17 verses on the screen up there, but we're just, we're just looking at the first three today, so we'll take our time. Um, it's really a series on focusing on God's heart for the nations. Um, Jonah is, in, in some sense, is sort of a counterpoint for Job, which is I think, one of the many reasons I chose it. In Jonah, you really see um, a prophet struggling with God's amazing compassion. It's too much for him. God is too compassionate to the wicked, and these guys are bad I mean, bad to the bone, these Assyrians that he's told to go preach to. And so he, he can't take God's compassion to the wicked. Job, on the other hand, is a counterpoint. It's, so that, just, that kind of blows up that paradigm we have of God is, is being compassionate even to the utterly wicked and having a heart for them. Job is like, why do the righteous suffer? So I'm just all about busting up our paradigms of God, this, uh, according to the word, of course. This summer, and busting up mine first, I really want to get wrestled to the mat, as it were, with, by God and his word. So I, hopefully, hopefully we can do that together. We can get pinned together. Um, Jonah, God's heart for the nations. It's what I want to, I really see that in this, in this text. It's hard to avoid. I want, to, I want to preach it every Sunday and really have more of his heart for the nations by the end of this time. Um, so Jonah, the book, as a prophet, he's unique among the prophetic books of the Bible, of which there are many. Um, all other words of God um, are in the prophet's mouth spoken to the people, first involving judgment and then salvation, um, or a promise of salvation. But Jonah is about the prophet Jonah himself, rather than just a, a word that he's giving to the people of Israel. So it's, it's a story about Jonah. It's a narrative, and it's, it's a satire, really. Um, scholars kind of are back and forth as to what, what sort of genre this is, but it's really a satire. Um, it's a comedy. It's a really funny book, but it conveys some intensely profound truths, bone-crushing truths, um, very hopeful truths. But, but again, stuff that will make us kind of check our, what we thought was our understanding of, of who God is. It's also unique in this way. Um, one commentator says, we do not have any other record in Scripture of a prophet who disobeyed God's call. So it's just utterly... Um, ruthlessly, blatantly truthful, as the scripture tends to be, about this disobedient prophet. It would have been easy in this national history of Israel to keep that bit out, because it's just an embarrassing book. But here it is. So Jonah the man, that's Jonah the book. Um, he's the son of Amittai, as Nathaniel read in verse 1. Who is this guy? A little bit of background before jumping in. He's mentioned one other time in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings 14, he prophesied during the politically prosperous reign of the wicked king Jeroboam II of the ten northern tribes of Israel. So by this time, um, the unified Israel had split 
after David and Solomon into the north, Israel, and the south, Judah. And so Jonah is a prophet to the wicked uh, King Jeroboam II to, to Israel during this time of disobedience, mid to late 8th century BC. So mid 1700s, late seven, uh, 700s, rather, sorry, um, mid late 700s. Um, Israel, the 10 northern tribes, in 60 years will be invaded by this nation that Jonah is going to preach to, the Assyrians, and exiled and have atrocities committed to them by this nation that he's going to preach to. Um, he preached um, disobedient Israel's welfare, their border expansion, at a time when other prophets in the Bible, like Amos and Hosea, were preaching against Israel because of their disobedience. So we're already sort of, if we know our Bibles a little, we're, are, we're already, or a lot, because this is kind of obscure information, we're sort of wondering about Jonah and his character already at the beginning of the book. Um, he's very much a, nas- a nationalist, in other words. Jonah is a very much a nationalist. He's Tea Party. He's a member of the Tea Party. He's pro-Israel. And what I mean is like pro-America, right? So he, he would be that for Israel. Um, God sent him, this Tea Party member, to Iraq, to ISIS, to speak a word of rebuke and blessing to that people. So homeboy wanted nothing to do with that. So in our text today, we see that, what does he do? He runs. He runs. Um, so in, in Jonah, I hope that we can see a mirror of ourselves. Um, we tend to be, we tend to favor self. We tend to favor where we come from. We are um, egocentric in the ugliest ways um, quite often. Um, and... Uh, when God tells us, when he comes in his word and tells us something we don't want to hear, whatever that happens to be, he crosses our will. Oftentimes we run just like Jonah. So I want very much to identify together with this, this prophet um, during these weeks. Um, so, yeah, one thing we see, um, well, let me back up. Okay, so big idea. If you're, if you're taking notes or even if you're not, if this helps you, when a word comes that we don't want to hear. Okay, that's, that's basically what I want to preach on for the next few minutes to, um, to you. That's what we looked at in the first few verses. When a word comes to us from God that we just don't want to hear. When God's word contradicts my will, I tend to run from him. And we're gonna, we'll talk about various manifestations of that, um, but we're all well familiar with that syndrome. I, I certainly am. Uh, when we do that, it's futile, it's counterproductive, and it's dangerous. Calvin puts, John Calvin, the reformer, in his characteristically brief way, he puts the matter before us this morning squarely and simply. He says this. He says, Jonah relates what happened to him after he had attempted to avoid the call of God. So that's what we're looking at. I'm just going to give you some principles this morning. I, I typically go three points on you, tr- Trinitarian. It's just a, it's a pastoral sickness. Um, but I'm just going to I'm just going to shoot out some principles as we walk through the text this morning, mix it up a little bit. The first principle is this. Wait for it. Dramatic tension. The first first principle is this. One characteristic of God's word is that he often tells us things we, one, would never tell ourselves, things that clearly don't come from our intelligence or our will, and two, which contradict our will, things that we just don't want to hear, as I said. So what do we see in this text this morning? God comes, 
to Jonah and it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, and cry out against it. This is God's word that's come to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, and cry out against it. So again, this, this is unique. There are lots um, of prophets who get a word from God to preach against Israel's enemies, of which Nineveh, being the capital of Assyria, which we'll get into in a second, is one. A huge enemy. A huge And when I say huge, I don't just mean existentially huge. I mean physically, geopolitically massive, way bigger than puny little Israel. Um, But never does God say, now go into that heart of darkness. Go to that country and preach in the middle of that country against that country. That is frightening. So this is unique. But this is what God commands Jonah to do. Um, something that he never would have chosen to do on his own. And often, I think that's one of the ways we can, we can see um, as I'm in God's word and as I'm walking with God by the power of his Holy Spirit, is this God speaking to me? Is it something that I would never think of on my own? And that doesn't break his word and his commands, obviously. Um, this principle that God is telling us things that we don't want to hear, things that cross our will, is a reminder that God's word is God and that God is a person. Persons cross our will because persons have wills of their own, right? Um, One thing that's so attractive about relational fantasy or pornography is that this person of our imagining, in the case of relational fantasy, um, half real, half in our minds, um, or in the case of pornography, they're this glossy, um, totally vulnerable, totally exposed picture of a person, but it's it's not a real person I'm engaged with. Uh, What's so attractive is that these people, one of the things, is that these people can't talk back. They're just used by us to gratify us in whatever way. Um, They are and they do exactly what I want them to be. So it's not relationship. There's no crossing there. Um, Our interaction with them is easy. It's too easy and so easy that it doesn't deepen us. Rather, it does the opposite. It hollows us out. It hollows us out because there's there's no crossing. There's no real person there. Um, it's just a two-dimensional thing or a fabrication in our mind of this fantasy. An affair can be attractive for the same reasons. Um, this person's just available for me and my needs. They're not bearing my burdens, uh, wiping dirty heinies, um, sticking with me in, in, through thick and thin, telling me things I don't want to hear but I need to hear like a spouse will or should. I can't imagine a spouse that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't tell you things you don't want to hear on a regular basis. Um, it's usually that kind of stuff that's best for me with Robin. Um, this person that I'm having this affair with is thus helping me to become less real. And I them, moving me toward being an unman, to steal a term from C.S. Lewis. But a real person can cross me. And if I'm in a serious relationship with them, they will. And quite often, the more serious and the more close I am, the more they can and do cross me. That's just part of being with another person. It's, it's the shallow relationships where that doesn't happen, right? Um, real people who really love us will speak truth to us that we don't want to hear. Um, and again, this is what God does with Jonah, and it's a sign that he's a person, not just an electro, electric force that you can plug into. God is a person. We are persons because he has made us in his image. He has affinities, dislikes. He's grieved, the Bible says over and over again, by our sin hurts him. He takes it personally because he's a person. He's multi-personal. He's more than personal, right? He's three-personed. Reading his word as as a corollary of this is, is, 
is being with him. It's not just, and I, I know this is a, night, a, a note that I strike over and over. I know this is a, a drum that I beat. But that's because it's important to me and because I see it all over the scriptures. Um, when we spend time in his word, which continually ought to bring us back to where we ought to be, um, to reset the bone, as it were, to use that metaphor that I used two weeks ago. We, we are in his word, and then we are quiet, and we talk with him, and we listen to be with him. I mean, this morning, we're here worshiping to be together with God in his presence, not just to talk about him. We don't just read his word to get information. We do get information, but we do it to meet with the real God and to learn what he's like and to be changed into his image. Um, so that's the point of being in his word, is to be made more like him and to, to get to know him as a person. Um, so it's not a data dump, it's a FaceTime with the living God. When this personal God tells us what we don't want to hear, we sometimes close the book, we stop the conversation, we sometimes run. And this is exactly what Jonah does here. And hopefully you're starting to see, man, we're no different in this sense than Jonah. I do this all the time. Hopefully less and less, but all the time. And when I need his word most is when I tend to close the book, as it were, whether literally or not, and run, as it were, most. Which is why I just want to say briefly here that a good hermeneutic, this is a fancy term, a good rule of interpretation of Scripture is that when you read something that ooh, you, want, you want to close the book after you read it and it doesn't agree with you, it's probably that word that you need. Just like with a person. Man, when my wife is telling me, give me all sorts of kudos and tell me things I, need to, I, want, I like to hear, I probably don't need that. It feels nice, and I want that. And keep, keep doing it, babe, but... Um, but man, it's when, she, it's when she's loving me, not when she's, you know, not that she ever does this, but carping or being critical in a mean way, but when she's loving me well and telling me what I don't want to hear, that's what I need the most, probably. And that's when I do want to run, but that's when I need to stick it. And that's, the, it's the same with God's word. I just want to encourage you in that. And we can help each other in community toward that. Hey, where are you going? Let's go. Let's, let's talk about this together. Brother, sister, I see this. I see that, and we can, in that sense, speak into each other's lives. And that's part of what covenant membership is about, right? It's about, hey, gosh, I really want to cut and run right now, but I made this commitment be, partly because I don't trust myself. And I know that when I want to cut and run is when I need people to pull me in, and I need that covenant that I made to keep me here the most. Well, that's what family is. So he says, God says this, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. Not a savory task for three reasons, briefly, and then we're going to jump into a little bit more about Nineveh. It's Nineveh, the capital of this ferocious enemy of Israel. Two, it's a great city, God says, a huge, a huge and a powerful city um, and a powerful people. Nineveh was the time, at the time the seat of the world power um, at that time, before Babylon, before Persia, um, Assyria, east of Israel, in modern-day Iraq. And he says, thirdly, cry out against it. So again, your job, should you choose to accept it and you don't have an option, you know, this isn't a suggestion, this is a command God gives Jonah, is to go into this enemy territory, not just to stand outside it, not just to write him a letter, not just to cry out against them from the confines of his country, but to go there and to go to the heart of the city and just start preaching against it. I mean, from a human point of view, um, you're not coming out alive, bro. That's a body bag mission. Um, I'm going to 
tell you a little bit more about Nineveh. Dramatic pause. A little bit more about Nineveh. Nineveh is present-day Mosul, Iraq. It's on the east bank of the Tigris, a few miles downriver from the foothills of the Kurdish mountains. It, quote, enjoyed a temperate climate. Its hills were well-wooded, its valleys rich in figs, olives, grapes, grains, oranges, lemons, apricots, and vegetables of many varieties. By this time, it had become the capital of an empire, as I said, that was over a millennium old, the dominant empire of the ancient Near East. Nineveh had a river walk. If you have an ESV study Bible, there's a map of this river walk on page 1691. It had a river walk. It had it like San Antonio. It had an intricate system of canals, but the Tex-Mex probably wasn't as good. Just going to go ahead and say that. Um, intricate system of canals and aqueducts that interlace the city, irrigating gardens all over the city. It had a zoo. Ur, in Abram's time, over a thousand years previous, had flush toilets. Um, some of this to, to sort of drive this point home. Darwinism means that we find this information hard to believe. Um, because Darwinism says that the world goes like this, from primitive to advanced, from worse to better, from less organized and complex to more. To that I say, hogwash. Biblical account is the exact opposite. The biblical account is that God made things perfect and man's rebellion plunged all, ourselves included, into a state of disrepair. That caveman stuff we've been spoon-fed is a load of humanistic horse manure, guaranteeing a worldview which is prone to what C.S. Lewis called, quote, chronological snobbery. So, that's that. I bet you're never going to forget that phrase, are you? Nineveh's patron city, uh, patron, I have city here, patron goddess was um, Ishtar, the goddess of love and war. So her, her main object of worship was a god of war. Um, and love and war were intertwined, if that tells you anything about their lifestyle. They were a fearful people. Some modern-day equivalents might be, a century ago, the Comanche Indians um, or um, ISIS today. A very good comparison in a lot of ways. Um, very martial. So worldview based on uh, order arising from chaos. They were essentially a military state, sort of like Sparta. Expert in invading, deporting, and resettling whole people groups, much like the Soviet Union of last century. Um, this quote from Assyrian king S.R. Haddon. Quote, they hung their corpses on gibbets, stripped of their skins, and covered the walls of the city with them. These are, of course, conquered people. Shalmaneser II said, one, uh, said of one conquest, a pyramid of heads in front of his city I erected. Their young men and women I burned in a bonfire. This was a bad people, the worst, and Jonah knew it. They would come and do all this to the ten northern tribes of Israel in just over half a century. Jonah's people. God rails against them for what they do in 60 years, and he promises their destruction through his prophet Nahum, who's one of the minor prophets. You can read about it years later. But here and now, he sends Jonah to cry out against them for their evil. And as we'll see in a bit, God's, when he sends his prophet to cry out against a people, when he sends his word to us, no matter how hard it is, it's always, it's always a hopeful thing. It always includes a word of hope. What we don't want is for not to have any prophets. What we don't want is for the prophets to leave. What we don't want is to have no word from God, because no word from God, no matter how hard, equals no hope. Principle. 
God hates evil, and he will punish all of it and right every wrong, even if it seems like he is doing nothing, or worse, helping evil thrive and rewarding the evildoer. Furthermore, God has both the power to end evil and the attentiveness and compassion to care about ending it, paying its perpetrators back and restoring those wronged by it. So that's the principle of what we're going to jump into. He says, call out against it, this city, Nineveh, because its evil has risen before me. Evil had to rise. It's an idiom in the Hebrew, but it had to rise. It's a way of reminding us that God is above all this. He's the uncreated, as Chris mentioned in his prayer in his own way, he's the uncreated creator. He's the only essential being. Um, he has always existed, and he always will exist, and he has all power, even over evil and sin. And he uses it for his ends and for the good of his people. And that should be, can be, a really encouraging thing when we're experiencing and we're suffering under, um, under evil in whatever way. God knows God is in control. Um, he is all-powerful, so he's high. Evil, this evil, even this great evil of Assyria had to rise, as it were, so he could see it and be offended by it. He rules over all things. He's in control of all, all sin and opposition, human, demonic, satanic. Um, this is an evil people, as I said, who will invade uh, in 60 years God's own people, Jonah's own people, in these gruesome ways that we've read about. But God's not threatened by this. He sits as king over the flood. He has absolute power. Um, he's not threatened by Nineveh, by its evil, by its sin. But this doesn't mean he's removed. He's not removed. On the contrary, he is moved. He is moved. God sees the Assyrian evil and he does something about it. So it says, it arose before him literally in front of his face. He sees evil, all of it, everything that goes on in broad daylight, behind closed doors, of course, not just with Assyria, but inside of us. Outside, but inside of our hearts as well. He sees and knows all. It comes up before him, and it's an affront to him. It's a stench in his nostrils. And if he hasn't done something to stop it, it's not because he doesn't care. He's patient, desiring that men should repent of their evil. Because he's not acting, he is planning to. If he's not acting, he's planning to. And in fact, he's acting now. He's always acting. That's one of the things that this verse sort of hints. Um, we just may not see his action yet. So now is the time to repent if we are able to. And now is the time to call out against evil being perpetrated around us, first in our vicinity and next wherever we hear of it going on. So he sends his prophet Jonah to denounce this evil, both to stop the evil and to turn the perpetrators, to turn the wicked from their sin. So God hates evil and so should we. Um, we as a church, you know, I'll talk about some of this in a bit, the vision bit after this, 15 minutes or so after the gathering. Um, stay if you're interested. But one of our planks is partnerships. We want to, we don't just want to, um, we don't want to have a huge staff and spend our money on that and on a building. We rather want to plow our resources, our, our money, our time, our talents into engaging in partnerships with organizations around this city first and then around the world. That are, um, that are fighting for justice and mercy, that are fighting evil. So we want to engage in fighting human trafficking. We want to fight abortion, uh, largely by helping women like the source on Richmond, help in, um, partnering with organizations that help women with alternatives so that they can keep their children. Um, I think of LifeHouse. Um, we want to be a culture where fostering and adoption is not just 
that lone couple over there, you can go talk to them, but where it becomes more and more normal, where it's part of our culture, so that wherever we plant churches, um, uh, foster children and orphans disappear. Um, Poverty is an evil. We ought to be feeding and clothing the poor and fighting the roots of poverty as well, the endemic reasons that it exists. So helping train folks and helping them get jobs, um, folks that are just out of prison and and folks that are that don't have skills. So I think of ministries like Kirk Craig's Agape Development in the Third Ward. I think of Work Faith Connection. Um, I think of Star of Hope. We want to partner with organizations like this. Um, we want to give them money and spend our time and talents helping them to do what they do. Um, so God loves evildoers, and we should too. Um, that's the, the next thing. This is one of the astonishing truths about this book. This is really one of the mind-blowing things about Jonah. Um, I'm not going to press too deeply into this because we're going to hit it more heavily in, in future um, sermons. Um, but his compassion for the egregiously wicked is so abundant that it offends Jonah, and it offends man. I mean, the gospel is good news, but it's also offensive to our flesh because God loves, bless you, God loves wicked people. He loves sinners. He died for them. He died for us. To say that's to say the same thing. That's the gospel. We can't clean ourselves up to come to God, so he came down and did it all for us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He lived the righteous life that we should live but haven't in our place. And he died on the cross, the death that we deserve for our rebellion, in our place. And he rose, as we sang about earlier, from the dead, conquering sin and death and hell in our place. And when we believe on him, God credits that to us. Wonderful. This is the God of Jonah. This is the God Jonah runs from. Let's skip that. Um, so what we find, again, is, um, as one commentator says, Jonah runs when he, it's a, it's, a tri- it's a funny, it's not a tricky text, it's a funny text. You can start to see the satire even in the first three verses. Um, God says, uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and he says, arise, go to Nineveh. And it says, so Jonah arose. And I'm sitting here looking at the original text, so I'm like, I'm not reading ahead, you know, because I, I can only see one word at a time. Jonah rose, and then he fled to, he went the opposite direction, right? Um, one commentator says, Jonah went all right, but not to Nineveh. So Jonah arises just like God tells him to, but he goes, he goes the opposite direction. Um, and one principle, and, and you know, what it says is that he fled from the presence of the Lord, and that phrase is there twice in this short, these first three verses. Jonah fled, where, where from? From a tribal deity? From a person? No, no, from the ever-living God, who is clearly in the biblical scriptures the only creator of everything, of the sea that Jonah's about to go to, which we'll get into especially next week. So one of the principles you can glean from this is that Jonah, uh, sin is stupid, just real simply. Sin is stupid. Running from God's word is just dumb. It, it, it's really dumb, and we see that play out, and it's, it's a funny thing, and it's a tragic thing, and God uses it, but we do the same things in our lives. But thank God that he pursues us, and he follows us down, down, down to the bottom. 
And hopefully at that point we surrender. But hopefully it won't take us that long. And hopefully, perhaps because of this word, we'd be less likely to run when we encounter something that God says to us that, that, that counters our will. So we'll get into the principle that sin is stupid more next week because uh, there's just so much deliciousness in, in that principle in the text for next week. Um, but I just want to um, look at Tarshish briefly and then, and then we'll close up um, as we land on, on Christ as I always do. But he flees to Tarshish. He, God says go east and Jonah goes west to Tarshish. Tarshish, we're not exactly sure where it was. It was somewhere on the far reaches of the ends of the earth and the mental map mind of the ancient Near Easterner. It could have been modern-day Spain, um, close to the Straits of Gibraltar, um, the gates of Hercules, as they were known to the Greeks. You pass through those gates, and you're at the end of the earth. You're going to fall off, man. Um, so it's just this sort of hazy place on the outer rim of the known world of the imagination, a place of pleasure in some accounts where God is not. Um, so it sort of represents, fleeing to Tarshish is sort of a way of saying just fleeing from God, getting to a place where God is not, or he can't bother me, he can't speak to me anymore, getting out of Israel for sure where God, God's people, where God speaks. Um, one, one commentator, James Ackerman, says, Thus we all know Nineveh is, as a city whose power is a threat to Israel's existence and whose evil is antithetical to God's will. Tarshish, on the other hand, lies somewhere in the far west and is a place Yahweh is not known. Jonah, a servant fleeing his master's sovereignty, also sees Tarshish as a refuge beyond Yahweh's domain. I mean, we all have our own private Tarshish, and, and it doesn't just have to be one, one place, but it's the place where I kind of go to, it's my place of fantasy, whether real or imagined, where I sort of, I go there, and I, so I'm sort of, in my mind, this is what I do, pressing pause on God's involvement with me, whether it's, um, and I have nothing against this per se, I do this, but whether it's the drink at the end of the day, and I'm, I'm not going there and including that in my worship of God, but I'm sort of pressing pause and I'm saying, this is mine. It's really whatever we say, this is mine too. It could be anything. Um, a relationship that's unhealthy, it might be work as an escape. Um, Again, that, that pause button. Um, but there's no such thing. There's no such thing as Tarshish. We are deceived. At best, this is futile. It's going to waste a, a whole lot of time and energy as it does with Jonah, as we'll see. And at worst, he actually lets us go to Tarshish or down to the bottom without rescue. In running from God's word to these places where we imagine we can escape to some kind of acceptable gratification, and we all do it, I hope you have in your mind, yeah, I know exactly what mine is. To some acceptable gratification, we descend as Jonah did, and in so doing, we put ourselves in a really dangerous place. Ackerman says, he says this, he says, prophets were thought to be servant messengers who attended the divine court, standing before the presence of their king. Jonah's flight from Yahweh's presence is described as a series of descents. In the Hebrew, it's yarad. He went down to Joppa, if you notice, into the ship, and into the innermost part of the ship. He then lay down and fell into a deep sleep, the latter term again echoing the Yarad descent pattern. This motif, extremely common in the Psalms, is continually echoed in Jonah's prayer, which describes his, that's chapter 2, it describes his entering Sheol, the world of the dead. You can't go more down than that. The narrative, therefore, seems to be depicting Jonah's flight from Yahweh's presence as a descent to the underworld. Our prophet is taking a path that leads to death, 
as he seeks to avoid the road to Nineveh. So God's word to Jonah about going to Nineveh is his word to you, which sound, whatever that is, which sounds like death to you. It crosses your will, and your reaction, friend, and my reaction is to flee. God's word that may seem like death is our only path to life. It is our only path to freedom. There is no alternative, fantastic, or real life. There is no contentment, freedom, or satisfaction apart from God's word or away from it. That's a fiction. It's a fiction of our own broken making. It leads to a descent that ends in the heart of the sea in a watery grave in death. And eventually, if God doesn't come after us and rescue us in eternal death. God's word that seems like death is a word that moves us beyond the prison of self into a wider world. The world of the nations, of confrontation and love, of seeing the miracle of men's repentance, of the adventure of obedience. George MacDonald said, obedience is the soul of knowledge. It's the door that we walk through to, to begin to understand it releases us from what C.S. Lewis called that mirrored gaze, from the prison of our own prejudices, hatreds, vanity, and selfishness. In a word, it gets us outside of ourselves. It, it brings us to God. But in fact, and here's maybe the most hopeful word in this short text this morning, um, Jonah, the whole book, and even these three verses, teach us that God uses our sin and our rebellion and our fleeing from his true and good word. Um, as it contradicts and crosses our will, perhaps. He uses this to bring us, he uses this often to bring us to a low place, a place that our sin takes us. And it's in that place often, only, unfortunately, that we hit rock bottom, surrender, and say, all right, I'm yours. And that's what we're going to see in the oncoming weeks. Uh, at the end of chapter two, Jonah kind of, he gets to that place, but it's sort of a faux repentance, I think. If We'll get there. And we'll talk about what that looks like in us. But God is so merciful um, to use our descent and our running from him in these ways. So our wickedness in closing, I want to I say this. Just take us to Jesus and then we're going to celebrate together communion as we always do. Our wickedness offends God just like that of the Assyrians did. It rises before his face. He sees it. He smells it. It offends him. It disgusts him because he's good. It's like if, uh, if you saw a child being beaten. Imagine your reaction. That's God's reaction to sin and evil. Um, or if you saw a child eating, let's say your child, if you have a child, eating, or a child you love, if you're an uncle or an aunt, eating rat poison. That's a weird example, except that I was trying to once as a kid, apparently. We were, had a ranch, and I was... My mom was um, away for a second and, uh, you know, just takes kids. I mean, we have a year and a half old, and she's just so fast as grease lightning, man. It just takes them a second. But um, she saw me playing in, in, a mit, in the middle of a pile of rat poison that I dumped out on the floor in the, in the kitchen, in the, in the dining room, actually. But you see your kid eating, about to eat rat poison or eating rat poison. How do you feel about that? You, you hate, you hate the poison. You wage war against it. Um, that's how God feels about your sin as well, because he, it, it kills you. You think it tastes great, but it's killing you, and it kills our souls, and God knows that, and he loves us, so he hates our sin. Um, in the end, um, we, what assurance do we have that God's word to us is good, even when it crosses our will 
and feels anything but good. The assurance that we have is that his word came, not just to Jonah, but to us. It crossed our will so much that we crucified it. John tells us in his prologue that Jesus Christ is the word of God. His very character made man. Made, you know what, he took on skin and bones. He remains a man for us to live in our place, to die in our place. And we, God came to us, his word came to us, and we so hated it. We're so opposed to God's word in our flesh. We so want to be on the throne of our own lives. We so want to be in control that we crucified that word. But he used, you talk about following us down to the depths. He went to the depths, to the very cross and to hell for us. And he used our crucifying him and our hating him to save us. Because he took what we deserve and he was a substitute sacrifice for us. And so in him, because he died, we no longer have to. Because he took the punishment for my sins and became my sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he actually became the poison pill. He didn't just take the poison pill. He became the poison that God hates, hateful and odious to his father, and was rejected so we could be brought in. That is how we know when God speaks to us now, his word is good. He can be trusted because he went to the cross and to hell for us. And he brought life and redemption and salvation out of it. Um. This word Jesus, this gospel that he brings, it's not just for us. It's not just for the church. It's for people that hate God. It's for people that hate us. It's for God's enemies. Um, Because we were once. And God died for us and we are still his enemies. And he brought us to himself. And he showed his beautiful self to us. And that's what he wants to do with folks from every nation all around this area. And it's our great privilege to preach that good word, to live that good word as we work. As we're, as Nathaniel said when he was anchoring, as we're in shops and forming relationships in neighborhoods and going to Vietnam coast after lunch and whatever else, to see Nineveh, Assyria, to see the nations, to see God's enemies, people that are deluded, people on whose door God is knocking. To see them and, and to see Nineveh and to see Jonah's call to go and to say, God has provided a way through his son Jesus Christ, the only way. Um, We so want you to know him, and he is good. Um, And so that's why we're here. That's why we're here. So I'm really excited to get into this book together. We just scratched the surface, but uh, we'll be getting into it more and more. So let me me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you uh, that your word actually came to us in the form of a, a little baby. <clears throat> helpless. <You're, laughs> you became helpless. God of the universe, that evil, the evil of a nasty empire like Assyria has to rise for you to even see it. And yet you're not removed. You are so moved that you came down yourself and you took care of the problem that separates us from you. And you took that punishment into yourself. And Jesus, we, we know that you are alive and that you live even now. You sit on the throne and you, uh, you're representing us before the Father. We who have trusted in you. And you beckon those who have not to come to you and to be saved. And we worship you. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.